How do the words, it's my duty, relate to an over 30-year-old massacre? That's the new slogan appearing on social media amid the anniversary of the Tiananmen massacre as Chinese citizens battle online censorship to commemorate the event. Why? President Biden is weighing whether to cut tariffs on China as a way to fight U.S. inflation. Will it work? We hear from experts on what might happen. And China is making more waves in the South China Sea, this time involving an Australian military surveillance plane. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. It's been 33 years since the Chinese Communist Party deployed its army and slaughtered students protesting for a better China. This year, the slogan, It's My Duty and a Bike, have become icons used to commemorate the event. Let's take a look. Saturday marked a busy day for Chinese internet censors, the 33rd anniversary of the Tiananmen Massacre. On the night of June 4, 1989, Chinese troops opened fire to end the student-led anti-corruption and democracy protests. It happened in and around Tiananmen Square, the center of Beijing. China has never provided a full death toll for the event, but rights groups and witnesses say the figures could run into the thousands. On its anniversary this past Saturday, anything referencing the incident appeared to get blocked on Chinese social media. Any post giving the slightest hint or mention of the day also got instantly deleted. Days before the anniversary, many platforms in China blocked users from changing their usernames and profile pictures. And on the eve of the anniversary, reports say many users still tried to avoid authorities' censorship to commemorate the day. Some started sharing the slogan, It's My Duty, online. Why? That phrase came from an anonymous student who participated in the protests 33 years ago. That's how he responded to being asked why he planned to march at Tiananmen Square. He was riding a bike at the time. A BBC documentary captured the dialogue. Now, some users on Chinese social media platform Weibo have started sharing those words alongside bicycle icons. One post garnered over 100 bike icons and a number of reposts. But Beijing's censorship organ seemed to react quickly. Posts related to the slogan, It's My Duty, started vanishing from social media, even those including just the word duty. That was on the eve of the anniversary. Beijing's censorship machine acted quickly, and almost all related online posts disappeared by dawn. Liu Lipeng worked as a Weibo censor in China, he said in previous years, hundreds or thousands of keywords were usually censored during the June 4th anniversary, and noted that there were as many as hundreds of thousands of keyword combinations on the social media blacklist. The Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation opened its 1989 Tiananmen Square exhibit on Friday for the anniversary of the massacre. NTD's Melina Weiskup brings us the story. Artifacts include students' tents, letters from jailed democracy activists, and a painting of the youngest victim, only nine years old. 
A spokesperson told us that most Americans don't know that the Chinese communist regime crushed student protesters in 1989 for demanding human rights and basic freedoms. The uh, disproportionate and unbelievable and violent response that they were met with from the Chinese government, which was that uh, thousands of tanks uh, came out onto the streets of Tiananmen and crushed uh, these students uh, in their demands that they were making for freedom. She says that many Americans, millennials in particular, do not understand communism. In a poll conducted by her organization, about one-third preferred to live in a socialist system. About half did not know that Mao Zedong was responsible for tens of millions of deaths through famine. The Tiananmen massacre is a censored topic in China. Mothers of Tiananmen collected photos of about 200 students who were killed, but the real number of deaths is believed to be in the thousands. I think an important message is uh, that people can't take freedom for granted and to know uh, about the brave struggle of those who have fought for it. The Victims of Communism Museum memorializes over 100 million people murdered by communist regimes. The foundation is opening a museum in Washington, D.C. later this month on June 13th. Remember the tariffs that former President Trump slapped on China years ago? They're still there, and now President Biden is considering reducing them to fight inflation. Will it work? Experts break down this issue. President Biden may lift some of Trump's tariffs on China because of high inflation. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo told CNN. The president has asked us on his team to analyze that, and so we're in the process of doing that for him. Raimondo says tariffs on steel and aluminum may stay, but those on household goods may be reduced. Tariffs are a special kind of tax that the government places on foreign products. It's done to raise money, protect domestic companies, or even to harm other countries. It could bring prices down marginally uh, for certain consumer goods. John Dunham is the president of John Dunham & Associates. Dunham believes this won't have a big effect, but that lifting the tariffs is good. Trade always benefits both parties. Trade, So it would, would definitely help the economy. Tariffs are never, never generally a good thing. Not everyone agrees. It's absolutely the opposite of what we want to do from a geostrategic perspective is, uh, you know, give a free pass to an authoritarian dictatorship nation that uses slave labor out of, you know, I mean, we all know what goes on. Emma Muehlman is a senior portfolio manager at Impact Shares. Muehlman agrees it won't do much for inflation. A few things that we rely on China for. Um, at this point, everybody's already found another source, whether it's Bangladesh, Vietnam, Taiwan, or you know, Mexico. Some don't even think Biden will do it. Uh, removing the tariffs on China could make them seem almost weak, uh, you know, sort of giving in to uh, sort of inflationary pressure. Riley Walters is a deputy director at the Hudson Institute. Riley doesn't think the tariffs will be significantly reduced before the midterms, which are on November 8th. The inflation rate in April was 8.3 percent, down from 8.5 percent in March. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is criticizing China's genocide and repression of Uyghurs and suppressions on religions. He gave remarks on the issue amid the launch of the 2021 report on international religious freedom held by the Department of State on Thursday. PRC continues to harass adherents of other religions that it deems out of line with Chinese Communist Party doctrine, including by destroying Buddhist, Christian, Islamic and Taoist houses of worship, 
and by erecting barriers to employment and housing for Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners. The PRC is China's official name, the People's Republic of China. Beijing initially denied the existence of any detention camps in Xinjiang. But in 2018, officials said they had set up so-called vocational training centers, necessary to curb what it described as terrorism and separatism in the region. Under Beijing suppression, Chinese Christians who belong to China's underground churches often face harassment and arrest. Underground churches refer to those that operate without approval from the Chinese Communist Party. U.S.-based media outlet Radio Free Asia reported that in the last five months, in one city alone, at least 10 pastors were detained by police. As for another group Blinken mentioned in his comments, Falun Gong is a Chinese spiritual practice based on the principles of truth, compassion, and tolerance. Before Beijing started to persecute Falun Gong in 1999, numbers of the people practicing the meditation system outnumbered Chinese Communist Party members. The party perceived the practice's widespread popularity as a threat to its communist rule, even though the practice is not involved in politics. Even after 20 years, the mention of Falun Gong in public is still taboo in China. In March and April, more than 400 practitioners of the Falun Gong meditation practice were detained for their beliefs. On March 21st, a 66-year-old female Falun Gong practitioner named Ji Yuanzhi passed away after being tortured for a month and a half at a detention center. It happened in Inner Mongolia. Her son is an architect living in the U.S. And in Tibet, efforts to wash away culture and traditions have been happening for decades. Months ago, authorities in a Tibetan residential area of western China's Sichuan province demolished a 99-foot-high Buddha statue. The reason? They said it was too high. Authorities also forced Tibetan monks to watch the statue being destroyed as a way to humiliate them. A Chinese fighter aircraft intercepted an Australian military surveillance plane in the South China Sea region back in May. That's according to a release from Australia's Defense Department on Sunday. The statement says the incident involved a Royal Australian Air Force P-8 Maritime Surveillance Aircraft, or RWAF. That's the plane it says was intercepted by a Chinese J-16 fighter during routine maritime surveillance activity over international airspace in the region on May 26th. The intercept resulted in a dangerous manoeuvre which did pose a safety threat to the P-8 aircraft and its crew. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told reporters in Perth that his government had expressed concerns to China through appropriate channels. Defence Minister Richard Marle said the Chinese jet flew very close in front of the RWA aircraft and released, quote, a bundle of chaff containing small pieces of aluminum. That debris was then ingested into the Australian aircraft's engine. Australia has previously joined the United States in stating that China's claims around contested islands in the South China Sea do not comply with international law. And those aren't the only nations taking that stance. Earlier in June, Chinese jets reportedly endangered a Canadian military plane operating in Asia. The Canadian Armed Forces announced that the air crews in several Chinese aircraft were very clearly visible as they approached Canada's patrol plane. The Armed Forces went on to say the Canadian aircraft had to quickly modify its own flight path in order to avoid a collision. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called China's behavior extremely troubling.
Coming up, Top Gun Maverick is the latest example of Hollywood staying clear of the Chinese market while still making a profit. What's at stake? We hear from Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, inside the trillion-dollar dilemma facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American business. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Let's take a moment to turn towards Hollywood. Top Gun Maverick crushed box office numbers for the second weekend in a row. And now attention is on how China's market had little to do with that success. We sat down with Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, inside the trillion-dollar dilemma facing Hollywood, the NBA and American business to find out more. So lately, big in the headlines is Top Gun and the success it's having, including not being in the China market. So how significant is that? And I think if you if you backtrack and just look at what the movie is about, which is about American exceptionalism and sort of this uh, military that is world class, best in the world, and sort of the policemen of the world in a lot of ways, you could see that just the narrative of it, the thematics of it, might not be exactly palatable for the Chinese Communist Party to begin with. So I think there was always an idea that. It might not get into that market, even though it's a big franchise and has the possibility of generating huge box office. So that was when Paramount made a very good decision if they're thinking about business in China, and they brought in Tencent as a financier. But when Tencent actually saw a cut of the movie and saw the trailer for that movie, they saw the Taiwanese flag. On the actual jacket, the flight jacket of Tom Cruise's character, and saw the Japanese flag there too, and they felt like that was a little bit too sensitive in order to try to get that movie approved by censors in China. So they requested Paramount to take it off. Now Paramount took it off for the trailer,、um, but a lot of people noticed it being taken off for the trailer. So it created a geopolitical controversy around the world, and particularly in the United States. And I think ultimately. Tom Cruise and the filmmakers involved and the studio Paramount said, "Enough is enough.、Um, this movie doesn't stand a great chance of getting in the market. Number one. Number two is a lot of the movies from Hollywood that had been getting into the market hadn't been making all that much. And number three is, hey, we're American. We should protect free speech rights and the freedom of creativity rights of our filmmakers. And to edit something like that for the world because China is demanding it just doesn't seem right. So they put those flags back in, and of course now China is not happy about it. But I would say the rest of the world is pretty happy about it to the tune of. Three hundred million dollars worldwide, and that doesn't include a single dollar coming from China. But what do you see kind of changing besides the American theme? Was maybe COVID playing in? Would there be even a profit from China? Well, I think if you look at the returns of a lot of Hollywood movies five years ago versus the returns of movies. During COVID and during that post-COVID period, when theaters were back open, sort of last summer, the the returns were nowhere near what they used to be. So that risk-reward calculus of of dealing with the aggravation of of placating censors, placating the Chinese government, and 
in in sort of the effort of generating as much box office as possible in China, that risk reward calculus just didn't make sense anymore. So the aggravation, if you look at movies like Mulan or you look at Chloe Zhao involved with the Eternals or Shang-Chi, which had Chinese thematics in it, um, there's lots of movies that had been sort of going overboard in regards to placating the Chinese government, yet they simply weren't getting in the market or just weren't generating great box office returns. So I think now you look at studios going, well, wait a minute, is this all worth it anymore? So I like to say that doing the right thing and capitalism can actually coexist and we need more people to realize that. On that note, Chris, do you see this kind of being a sustainable trend in Hollywood, not needing the China market, or is that due to the lockdowns? How do you see this playing out? I think uh, Hollywood has found a way to monetize premium and I would call super premium content, which is studio level movies around the world in a much more efficient way. So the monetization and the efficiency to monetize has created better revenues and better profits for the studios. So quite frankly, China is not needed as much in the equation anymore. And there are actually studios now that are green lighting films with a zero in the China column. And so with these Hollywood films, how much money is China getting out of it? Do you see maybe China starting to pander to get the movies in? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the reasons why they needed Hollywood movies was to fill the seats of all these theaters that had been built. And these theaters weren't just standalone theaters. They were mega complexes that were part of the cornerstones of lots of real estate development. So if they couldn't make those theaters um, healthy, then those real estate developments around those theaters would be unhealthy too. So they really needed Hollywood to fill the seats. I would imagine that if Hollywood just goes back and makes the movies that they want to make, and a lot of those movies are going to have nothing sensitive about China simply because they're not stories that are relevant to anything sensitive about China. If they're good movies, they're universal, China is going to allow them in the market to be monetized because those movies will help fill seats and they'll placate the, con the consumer over there that's looking for some of that Western content. Pandas or pangolins? Cozying up to Beijing or keeping ties with Taiwan? A city in Europe chooses its animal of choice as a diplomatic gift after years of three-way tensions. Here's more. This is a pangolin, one of the world's most trafficked mammals. A zoo in Prague got a pair of them from Taiwan after a political falling out with China. Prague was originally hoping to get pandas after the Czech capital became a sister city to Beijing in 2016. But things took a turn after the new mayor took office. The new mayor, Zdenek Krib, wanted to remove a clause from the agreement that upholds the One China principle. Under it, countries or cities must recognize Beijing's claim that Taiwan is part of China. Taiwan split from mainland China after a civil war in 1949. Mock raids and mechanized maneuvers all express the heroic determination of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek to fight on whatever the future may hold. But Beijing still sees Taiwan as part of its territory, and it has been pledging to take control of the island by force. That's despite Taiwan being a self-ruled democracy. 
having never been ruled by the Chinese Communist regime and having its own military and president. Most countries, including the U.S., recognize the One China policy. Washington keeps diplomatic ties with China, but a law requires it to provide Taiwan with the means to defend itself. After Beijing refused to remove the One China Clause, Prague canceled its sister city agreement with Beijing. It later became a sister city to Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. So instead of pandas, Prague welcomed a pair of pangolins from Taiwan. For us, they are ambassadors of the wild nature, ambassadors of the pangolins that are still living in the wilderness. The Czech government still upholds the One China policy, but Prague says it wants to focus on cultural cooperation, not politics. Despite China's lifting of lockdown restrictions in many cities, the country's service industries are still feeling shutdown impacts. A new survey is looking into their business performance. Let's look at what it found. Beijing is coming back to life as China lifts lockdowns. The morning rush hour is getting busy again. But new data out Monday, June 6, points to a slow recovery for the country's services. The closely watched purchasing managers index hit 41.4 in May. That's better than the previous month, but still way below the 50-point level that indicates economic growth. Analysts say the weakness is likely to persist while the government pursues a zero-tolerance approach to virus outbreaks. Contact-intensive sectors like hotels and restaurants are likely to feel the worst effects. That's bad news for Chinese growth, with services accounting for 60% of the economy and half of all urban jobs. Other data show the jobless rate climbing above 6% in April to its highest since early 2020. To help stabilize the situation, China's government recently announced 33 new measures, including fiscal, financial, investment, and industrial policies. To end today's episode, the U.S. and South Korea are on high alert. That's after North Korea tested rounds of ballistic missiles on Sunday. Here's how Washington responded. South Korea's new president vowed to take a tougher stance against North Korea, and early Monday may have been a glimpse of that approach. South Korea and the U.S. fired eight surface-to-surface missiles, a joint military exercise that was in response to the barrage of missiles launched by the North just a day earlier. South Korea's military was cited by the country's Yonhap news agency. They're saying its actions demonstrate, quote, the capability and readiness to carry out a precision strike against North Korea. The South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yul, who took office last month, has agreed with the U.S. to upgrade joint military drills and their combined deterrence posture. At a memorial event on Monday, he said the North posed a threat to regional and world peace. North Korea's nuclear and missile threats are getting sophisticated. It fired various ballistic missiles yesterday. North Korea's nuclear and missile programs are reaching the level that threaten not only the peace of the Korean peninsula, but also in Northeast Asia and the world. North Korea has conducted a flurry of missile launches this year, but Sunday's short-range ballistic missiles were probably its largest single test to date. Washington and Seoul officials also recently warned that Pyongyang appeared ready to resume nuclear weapons tests for the first time since 2017. Last month, the U.S. called for more U.N. sanctions on North Korea, but China and Russia vetoed the suggestion. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or 
have something you'd like to see us cover? Send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.